0: If you got your Bibles, will you open up with me, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 15. This morning we're in our second week in our series in the book of Ephesians, a church for and with purpose. Hopefully as we go along with this, you'll get to experience some of the DNA of who we are. We started last week with understanding that we have been chosen, that we have been redeemed, and that we have been forgiven. We are a gospel-centered church. We'll talk a little bit more what that looks like next week. We believe that the gospel, the fact that Jesus has died for our sins and in our place, has implications for how we live our lives. Because we've given our life to Jesus, because we are a new creation, there's implications to how we go about our marriages. There's implications about how we parent. There's implications about how we deal with this city We believe that as you keep the gospel center, it's going to affect every other avenue of your life. This morning, we really want to share what what does it look like for us to be a church with purpose about prayer. So that's kind of the topic this morning. Again, we're going to start here in verse 15. We're going to read our way through 15 through the end of the chapter. Hear God's word with me this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. Says for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may "'Know what is the hope to which He has called you. "'What are the riches of His inglorious inheritance in the saints, "'and and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, "'according to the working of His great might, "'that He worked in Christ, that He raised Him from the dead "'and seated Him at the right hand in heavenly places.'" Well, it was inside Ravensburg Concentration Camp where Corrie Ten Boom woke up with this horrible cold. Cold wouldn't have been that big of a deal at home, but on top of her being in the concentration camp and all the stresses upon that, it was just one more thing for her to bear, and it was overwhelming her. Not to have anything to wipe your nose as she's going through this cold, and, and her sister Betsy saw that she was struggling, so Betsy comes up to her and says, why don't we pray for a hanky? Corey turned to her sister and said, pray for a handkerchief. We're in a concentration camp. Thousands of people are dying each week. If I'm going to pray about anything, it's not going to be a little handkerchief. It's going to be about something big. Does, does God even care about a little old handkerchief? Well, her Betsy, your sister, was stubborn, went up to her and said, we're going to pray anyway. So she began to pray Dear God, simple prayer. You see that Corey has a cold. Would you bring her a handkerchief? In your name, amen. Well, surprising enough, a couple moments later, somebody walks up to Corey Tinboon with this gift inside this concentration cap. She she opens it up, and sure enough, there is a handkerchief. She looks at the person who gave her and she begins to berate her. Did, Did Betsy put you up to this? Did you know that I had a cold? Why would you bring me a handkerchief? And the poor old lady just turns to her and says, I felt called by God to give you this, this gift. This is a gift from the Lord. So you can imagine how shocked Corey was to receive this handkerchief inside this concentration camp. And you have to understand this handkerchief was so much more meant to, more to her than just a tool to wipe her nose. She actually wrote about this handkerchief later on in life. She said this, this was a sign from heaven. Sign to me that this big God would care about me so much to bring me a handkerchief. Not only hear my prayers that this God would hear me, but a God that, that would hear his little children on a little old planet praying for something as small as a handkerchief. And then he also had the power to impress somebody on somebody else's heart, the inclination to now go and give me the handkerchief. God had the power to tell that person to bring Corey Tinboon a handkerchief in that moment. So what a sign. So I'll never forget it. And as I think about prayer. I think we all need reminders like Corey received in this handkerchief. We all need to be reminded that yes, we serve a big God that hears his people's prayers and not only hears them, but answers all of them according to he, how he sees fit. See, I, I think we all have questions like Corey it's sometimes in our lives. I think we all have doubts Especially if you go through a season where you're receiving unanswered prayer. Or you go through a season we which we're, you're, you're praying, but there is no answer. You have questions, you have doubts. Questions like, does, does God even hear us? Is, is there something that we should be praying more in life about? Can we even pray about the little things? Or should we just focus on the big things? So there's things that we should pray that that catch God's ear more, allows Him to answer more. Or should we be praying at all? If God's sovereign, does does He really care about the prayers of His children? See, we, we all got questions. And yet the relief is we, you and I, begin to pick up this book and we look in the Old Testament, we look in the New Testament, and the message is the same. That yes, you and I serve a big God. And yes, he hears the cries of his children. Not only does he hear their cries, but he answers each and every one of our prayers according to his sovereign will. In fact, sometimes I think we we often wonder how should we pray. But yet, as you look at this book, you see all sorts of prayers. You see prayers that are directed towards others. You see prayers directed to self see prayers that are deep and theological, and yet you see prayers that are simple and short and easy. see prayers that are asking for our circumstances to change, but yet you see prayers that that go beyond the circumstance and ask for our greatest need. You and I look in this book, we see all sorts of different kinds of prayers from all different types of people. This morning, I want to direct our attention to the Apostle Paul. As you and I look at the Apostle Paul, we see no greater prayer warrior than in, in all the scriptures than him himself. In fact, we, we can learn a lot from his prayers this morning. As you and I search the scriptures, you see that there's 42 different prayers from the Apostle Paul found in the New Testament. And it's not just the amount of prayers that we find that is so amazing, 42, but it's the content. It's, it's, it's what he, he calls out to God about. And what each and every one of these prayers tells us about Paul's theology is it tells us that, yes, he was a person who believed in a big God who heard his cries. He believed that God heard his prayers and answered according to his sovereign will. He he knew God could hear him. So therefore, he was a man on his knees constantly. In fact, as you and I look at, at, at Paul's prayers, it does tell us a lot about his theology. You can learn a whole lot about somebody from their prayer life. You can learn about what what Paul believed, about his God, what he viewed as important and valuable in this life because that's what he prayed about most. And yet the same thing can be said about you and me. Our our prayer life reveals a whole lot about us. And our prayer life can reveal about what we believe in, what, what we think about God, how if we have a high or low view of God, that's why J.I. Packer would put it this way, he says, I believe that prayer is the measure of a man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. He goes on to say, that, so that how we pray is as an important question as we can ever face in this life. I don't know we don't really like to ask these questions about ourselves, but we should. What does your prayer life tell you about your faith in your God? What does your prayer life tell you about what you believe and, and what God can hear and what you value most in this life? Are your prayers directed towards a big God that you believe that he hears you and he can move? That he can transform this, our, our city through your prayers? Or are your prayers become dry? Have they become routine or have they become even lifeless? Or, or do you even pray at all because you've you, you kind of bought into this thing that maybe he doesn't hear you? Well, this morning I want Paul to be an encouragement to us. Because as you and I look at the Apostle Paul, we, we do see this guy who believes in a big God and a, a person who, who hears all his prayers. In fact, what's so fascinating about Paul to, to me is the prayer we find in Ephesians, It follows a long diatribe about the sovereignty of God. First 14 verses, he's talking about this sovereign God that God has chosen you and I before the foundations of the world. And think about that for a second. Before the foundations of the world, God chose you in Him and then to have an inheritance. That's going to be important because as he's praying on behalf of the Ephesian church, he he picks up a lot of this sovereignty in how it's supposed to speak to our lives. How it's supposed to to speak to our encouragement on our mission to make disciples of all nations. So he talks about this sovereign God. He mentions being predestined two times. He, He mentions that we've been chosen another time. And you would think... After talking about God's sovereignty, that he's in control of all things, that you would think that Paul would throw up his hands and say, why pray then? We serve a God who's in control of all things and throughout human history, then why even bother calling out to this God if he's just simply going to have his way? But you don't see that in Paul's prayer life. In fact, you see the exact opposite. You you see Paul saying, as you see in this passage very clearly, it's for this reason in other words, it's for this reason what he just told us about in the first 14 verses why we should pray. Because we're chosen, we should pray all the more. Because we're, we serve this sovereign God and he is in control of all things, we should be on our knees. See, sovereignty was never a hindrance to Paul's prayer life. In fact, sovereignty was the ignition that made him pray all the more. Sovereignty is is what made Paul believe in a big God, that a God who could answer all of his prayers. And I get it, talking about God's sovereignty, it's a mystery in so many different ways, but at the end of the day, you and I have to understand it should propel us just as much as it propelled Paul's prayer life as well. In fact, there's so much we can learn from Paul in this passage. Notice what he begins and how he starts his prayer. He thanks And praises God for what God has done in the Church of Ephesus. Notice what he says there. It's starting verses fourteen through sixteen. He says, "For this very reason, because if I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers." It's a powerful just two verses. Paul says, I've seen how God has chosen you, church. I've seen how he's worked in your life. And because I've seen how he's worked in your life, I praise him. I thank him for the work he's doing. How he's molding you and shaping you. How his hand is upon you. How he's working in your life. Just for a second, how many of us have that as a part of our prayer life? How many of us really thank God for the work that he's doing in other people's lives? Maybe, maybe we don't have it as much as Paul does. Paul says, I never, I never cease in giving thanks for what God is doing in your life. And imagine if we begin to put that as a part of our prayer life. Imagine if we made it a habit to thank God, to praise him, to worship him for what he's doing in other people's lives. You see, when you and I begin to make that as a habit in our prayer life, what begins to happen is we begin to have the same thing in our lives that Paul is thanking the, uh, the, the church of Ephesus for having in their life. Now, notice what he's thankful for in those two verses. He's thankful that they have a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that's deep. And he's also thankful that they have a love for all the saints. In essence, they have a love for God and a love for all people. Which is the essence of the Christian life, right? And imagine when we begin to mimic Paul's prayer, thank God, praise God for what He's doing in other people's lives. Guess what? It develops that thing, that same thing, in our own life. It develops a great big love for God and a great big love for all people. Because when you and I begin to uh, to make this a part of our prayer life, we immediately begin to praise and worship God. Focuses our attention upon him and his holiness and his, his, his other worldliness. The fact that he is a sovereign God. The fact that he is the one who can transform and give us new hearts. But as we're thanking and praising him for that, what else are we doing? We're thanking for the work he's doing in other people's lives. Which then begins to bring their names to our minds. And as we pray for them and thank God for what God is doing in their life. It begins to develop a love for them. So as we begin to mimic Paul's prayers here, it deepens our love for God and it deepens our love for other people. But if I, if we were going to be honest with each other in this room, I think we'd all say that maybe our prayers don't center around others as much as they should. In fact, in my own life, I, my, you, you begin to look at your own prayer life and you begin to see how consumed you are with yourself and all the prayers about your own health, your own safety, all these things. And these things aren't necessarily wrong, just we just look at David's prayers and throughout the Psalms. They are directed a lot about his circumstances and himself. But if our prayer life reflects what we value most in life, could it be that if your prayer life can, is consumed about you and your own family, that maybe you've elevated y- you and your own family to an unhealthy level in your life? That you value your own circumstances and your own health more than other people and your love and passion for God? See, Paul's Paul's prayers are different. Out of the 42 prayers, you just look throughout them, I think there's less than three that are actually directed to himself. He's a person who is consumed about praising and worshiping God throughout prayer and praying and intercessing on, on behalf of other people. And imagine if we begin to mimic these prayers, is that not what we want in our own prayer life? To consider others more important than ourselves? But often we don't know how to do that. Often we don't even come to prayer and we think, well, what should I pray on behalf of this other, this other person? But this is where Paul becomes so powerful. Because if you look at Paul's prayer, it's very simple. It's kind of broken out in three parts and what we should be able to pray on behalf of our children, our coworkers, our friends, our family. It's broken out, he says, I want more knowledge of God. I want to pray for my people that they would know God more. Secondly, he prays that they would be people who who know gospel hope. That gospel hope would empower them in this Christian life. And thirdly, he prays that they would experience and see and know God's power more. Know God more, know hope more, know power more. He begins with this idea of we should know more of who God is. Look at what it says in verse 17 prays that the the church of Ephesus would begin to grow in their knowledge of God. He says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may he give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, God, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. In other words, what Paul is praying here is he's praying, I want them to have this ever-increasing knowledge of who God is. I want them to know more of God's grace. I want them to to see more of his patience. I want them to to see how holy and set apart he is. I want them to, to see his beauty, his transcendence, his otherworldliness. I want them to be caught up in who God is. And what's so interesting about this prayer is this prayer is the same thing he prays about to himself in Philippians 3. Remember Philippians 3 verse 10? That I want to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, so, so somehow to obtain the resurrection of the dead. He goes on to say, not, not that I've already obtained this or already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Paul says, I want to know God myself. And then he begins to pray for the church of Ephesus that they would know God more, that they would increase in their knowledge. See, Paul says, I I, I don't want my people to ever be satisfied or content in their knowledge of who God is. God is too big. God is too great for us to grow content in who he is. He's too big for that. So he begins to pray that they would have this ever-increasing knowledge of who our God is, that each and every day that we would pursue a greater knowledge of his power, his character, his might. And that's important we see, A.W. Tozer would say this, that what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because it impacts every other area of our life. J.A. Packer would say this, he says, what we were made for is to know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is eternal life that Jesus gives? To, To know God. What is the best thing in life? To know God. See, what J.I. Packer and A.W. Tozer understood is that our knowledge of who God is impacts, it impacts our worship. Impacts our faith. Impacts our obedience. You have a big view of who your God is, it will impact you in making great leaps of faith, of obedience in your life. You have a low view of who God is. You don't know his character. You don't see his faithfulness. It's going to impact how you serve him. And you see that throughout Scripture, right? Remember Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 6, he just gets a glimpse of God's character. He just gets a glimpse of God's glory and his holiness. Holy is the Lord Almighty. And as he sees this holy God is what they call the thriceness of God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy. No other attribute in all of Scripture is said three times. And he sees this holy God. What does Aidea do? He falls to the ground in worship. He grew in his knowledge of who God is. And what does it lead? It leads to worship. He gets up and he says, I am unclean. I'm a person of unclean lips. And how does it impact him on his mission? He says, here am I, send me. See, the same thing with Moses. He asks for God's glory to pass him. And what does God do in his glory? God reveals his character. He says, I'm merciful and compassionate, a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And when God reveals himself to Moses, what does Moses do? He says, I'm standing on on holy ground. I have to take off my shoes. It leads to reverence, to awe, to worship. You just walk throughout scripture and you see people who know their God. It impacts how they live their lives. Do Do you know your God? Have you seen how a knowledge of God impacts your life? In fact, I just want to read you some words from Augustine. As Augustine is sharing, talking about the, the knowledge of who God is, listen how he describes his God, and notice how it impacts our worship as we just hear these words. Now I read the words from Paul in 1 Timothy as he's describing God's character, and notice how they, they immediately bring you to worship. Augustine writes this in chapter four of his Confessions. He says, Most highest, most good, most potent, most omnipotent, most merciful, yet most just, most hidden, yet most present, most beautiful God, yet most strong, stable, yet incomprehensible, unchangeable, never new, never old, ever working, ever at rest. Still gathering, yet nothing lacking, supporting, filling, overspreading, creating, nourishing, maturing, seeking, yet having all things. Paul's word in First Timothy, to the king of ages in mortar, invisible, the only God, who alone has immorality, who dwells in immortality, who, who dwells in, in unapproachable light, whom whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor, eternal dominion. Amen. That's your God. A God who is so vast that we will will grow in our knowledge of who he is for the rest of all of eternity and still just get a a, a tiny glimpse of who, who he is. He's beyond us. Paul says, I want you to pray on behalf of other people that they would grow in their knowledge of who God is. Pray this for your kids, that each and every day they would grow and come to a greater understanding of their great big God and his character. Pray this on behalf of your spouse, that your spouse would grow in their knowledge of God's character and greatness, that they would find their security in him. Pray this for your coworkers. Paul says, I want my people to know God more. Not only does he pray that we would know God more, but what does he pray next? He prays that we would understand gospel hope. Look at what he says in verses 16 to 18. Again, he's kind of repeating myself here. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. See, gospel hope is the wind that, that strengthens us along the way. It what keeps us going in this life. You, you lose your hope, you lose your ability to keep going. Hope is everything. Ho- hope is like the spring flower that reminds you that winter is passing and there's a better day coming. And you need this hope to be able to to carry along without this hope again you we lose all energy and ability to keep on moving in this life In fact, just imagine if i gave you this assignment that i told you right now i wanted you to start running and at the end of of your run you're going to have this great treasure but i don't i don't tell you when the, the the finish line is imagine how long you're going to be able to run good day maybe seven fifteen miles 15 miles comes in, you still don't be able to run. Mile 26, you run a marathon, runner's wall comes to hit you, and it begins to to come raining down upon your head. Again, I haven't told you where the finish line is. Are you going to keep on running when the rain hits you and you're tired, you're exhausted, you don't know where the finish line is coming? Probably not. But then imagine when you're on mile 26, And somebody comes up to whisper to you that the the finish line is only a half mile away. Are you going to quit? No, that's hope. That the better day is coming, that the finish line, that the agony and the pain is going to disappear. Just keep on moving, keep on going. See, we need this hope in this life because our life is like a marathon at times. There's going to be times in which the storms of life come in and we are going to be tired and exhausted and we will want to wave the white flag. And yet hope comes in. It says the finish line is coming. Hope comes in the darkness of night and says a better day is just around the corner. Hope comes in and says the sickness is only going to last a while longer and then there's going to come a time... Where there is no more tears, where there is no more sickness, and there is no more pain, hope says continue on. Keep on moving. Keep on going. In fact, my mind often goes to what what would the saints in heaven tell us? You ever imagine that? Those who are in heaven right now, what would they scream to us? What would they shout on our behalf? They say, keep on going. It's worth it. Don't give up now. The reward is worth it. It's coming and it will be here in no time. All your loved ones who have passed away, they're shouting to you, it's worth it. That's hope. We have hope that a better day is coming. And Paul says, I want you to pray that. That your people would know this hope that this hope would empower them, that your children would see it and hold fast to it. Especially in our day, when people are struggling to see hope, when the clouds of this life have has faded their vision to see any gospel hope in their life, this is what we need to pray. In fact, did you know God's name as he calls himself in Romans is the God of hope? If you study scripture, you know God's names are important. He calls himself the God of hope later on in Romans it says this hope will never put us to shame in other words this this hope is secure and as you're looking at this passage where is our hope found it's found in the sovereign reign of our king that's our hope That Jesus is is seated at the right hand of the Father that he has won. That our ransom has been already paid for. And our inheritance is guaranteed. Our treasure is waiting for us. So keep on running. He says, pray that. Pray that your people know me more. That they would come to the knowledge of, of who I am and my holiness And in my my, my power and my might, and pray that my people would keep their eyes fastened upon that gospel hope. And lastly, he prays that they would see his power, they would experience his might. And we see his power that it would propel us in this life. Look at what he says lastly in verses 19 to 23 and catch the power in the words that Paul is trying to describe his God and the vastness of his might. Verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, toward, toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, his power has no end. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. And Paul's trying to find every word he can use to describe the power of who his God is, because his power knows, knows no end. Just for a second, imagine, where have you seen God's power displayed in your own life? Throughout history, where would you describe God's powerful might the most? Where has God demonstrated his power the most throughout human history? Was it in creation, when he simply spoke and there it was? Was it it when he rescued his people, the... The Israelites from the Egyptians and he showed his power and his might as he flexed his muscles in the ten plagues and then he split the Red Sea wide open and there's dry land. Imagine being in that place and seeing the Red Sea literally go up and then when you're walking, not on wet or mud, but you're walking on dry land. Or maybe it was with With Elijah, when he's calling down this sacrifice in front of him, and and what it says is the Lord's fire comes and it consumes the sacrifice and it consumes this trough of water. The sacrifice is soaked, but the fire of heaven consumes it in a second. Could it be there? Or maybe when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was dead and gone, but yet he calls his name, simply calls his name, and, and Lazarus stands up back to life. Is it, is it there? Where throughout human history has God demonstrated his power the most? It's kind of a trick question, because when we talk about an omnipotent God, there is no area in, in throughout history in which God strength. No, his power has no end. So therefore, there's no degree of difficulty when it comes to God's power. He speaks and it happens. Think about that. Throughout all of history, there's never been a time where God has had to strain to make his way come about. He speaks and it happens. So in this passage, what Paul is doing, he's not describing a moment in history in which God has demonstrated his power in the most. He's simply picking the spot where it was the most important. When he turned to Christ, he says, Christ, my power is going to raise you from the dead. That's his power. That's his might. And Paul says, I want you to pray that they would experience that same power. Same power that raised Christ from the the dead. He wants us to experience and know and trust. See, this power has an impact on how we live our lives. That's what Paul is wanting us to see. As you and I begin to come and trust in this power, it empowers us on our mission. This sovereign rule and power. His dominion has no end. He, he is the one is that everybody is under his feet. How does that impact on our mission? Remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 28? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What was that supposed to do for his disciples? Sovereign power, all dominion has been given to me, all power, it's all mine, all the kingdoms. So therefore, go and make disciples of all nations same words he would say later on when he says i am going to build my church to peter and, and the gates of hell will not be able to conquer it what is he saying he's saying god's sovereign rule should impact your mission pray this that your people would trust in that power in fact notice what it says back in verse 22 i'm going to read it one more time verse 22 i'm going to read it in the niv because i think the translation is a little bit clearer He says, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. Catch those next words for the church. For the church. Christ raised from the dead for the church. Christ exalted for the church. Christ glorified for the church. Christ seated at the right hand of the Father for the church. See, he's trying to empower you on this mission. This is all for the church. He says, I need you to pray that your people would see that power, trust in that power, and live by that power. His sovereign rule should have an impact on how we live our lives. Why should we be afraid of anything? In fact, the story is told from D.A. Carson about his father, his father was a pastor in Quebec, Canada in the mid-50s. In the mid-50s in Quebec, you have to understand there was kind of a Catholic nation at this time and anybody coming in with any sense of evangelical or Protestant beliefs were thrown into prison. So therefore, in the 50s in Quebec, anybody, they were coming in missionaries at this time trying to preach the gospel and yet what was taking place is these missionaries were thrown into prison. So therefore, these the, the missionaries didn't last that long. D.A. Carson seeing this take place. He's like, why are all these missionaries leaving Quebec and going back to their home? He's, his dad turns to him and says, well, back where they came from in Africa and when they were being in South America at this time, they were seeing this great big kind of sweep of evangelism. God was doing a mighty work. But yet here in Quebec, they're not able to see it as well. So all these people, they kind of see maybe God isn't present in this place, so therefore they kind of gave up and went back home. D.A. Carson, hearing this from his father, he says, then why are we still here? Why don't we go to a different place where it's so much easier for us? We don't have to worry about being thrown into prison. And yet his dad turned to him and said, I believe God's people live in Quebec. What is he saying? From the foundations of the earth, God determined there was going to be people in Quebec in the 50s that were going to hear the message from D.A. Carson's dad and come to faith. So he remained. His God was sovereign, his God was powerful. In fact, what's so interesting is that's exactly what, what God t- told Paul in Acts 18. If are familiar with Acts 18, you understand that Paul this time was suffering. He just was thrown into prison in Philippi. He comes out. He goes to Thessalonica. And there he's struggling as well. And he's thrown out of the city where he almost dies. And, and then on top of that, he goes to Athens. And, and there is really, they're struggling to, to grasp the gospel. And now he's in Corinth. We've been through First and Second Corinthians. And this church was a mess. And he's scared. What's so interesting in this moment when he's scared and he's struggling, listen... Listen to the vision that God gives them and listen to what God says to Paul in this moment. God turns to Paul and says this, For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. For next, Catch this next part. For I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city in Corinth. That are my people, and you would look at that and assume that the church is already established. It wasn't. God is turning to Paul and says, In my sovereign hand, of if, if how I reign, and I have already chosen my people in Corinth. So go therefore and proclaim the gospel. Don't be afraid. Do you know that power? Do you believe that God has people in the sandhills? Did you believe that God has people on Fort Bragg? Do you believe that God has people in your family that He has chosen? And He's saying, Go out. Don't be afraid. You serve the sovereign king, you serve the one who who holds the whole world in His hand. You have nothing to fear. What do we pray for on behalf of our friends? Very simple. We open up a passage like this and we say that they would know God more, that they would understand gospel hope, and they would come to rest in the power and the might of who our God is. Do you pray that? Would you pray that on behalf of everybody else in this room, on behalf of your family, your spouse, your friends, your coworkers? God I'm thankful I'm astounded that you are a God who is beyond anything what we could ever imagine God I'm so thankful that you have chosen to reveal yourself specifically through your word and even more so in your son Jesus Christ that we got the ability to taste and see your gentleness in the person of who Christ is that we saw your grace and your mercy. We saw your, your, your focus in your pursuits of the sinful. Oh God, would, would, would our hearts match your character? God, God, would you mold and shape us to have eyes that, that see people like you do and have hearts that love people the way you love them? God, we're thankful for your son who came to die in our place and for our sins. Thankful that we don't have to work. But you call us who are heavy and and weary and heavy laden to come and simply, simply call out. God, yes, we've sinned. And we need your strength. We need your sacrifice. We need your son to stand in our place. God, would your people walk out in that gospel power that yes, we have been chosen we have been redeemed we have been forgiven and we are the people with the greatest hope that this world has ever seen let us proclaim it from the rooftops propel your people on mission as we live this place as we send them out as missionaries within the sand hills God, empower them be with them. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.